Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And somebody introduced me to a guy, John Vernacki, who did a 53-part series on YouTube. He's evidently a psychologist, I think also in Canada or someplace like that. Like, probably knows Jordan Peterson, and somebody said he, that Jordan Peterson likes his work. And... uh I was just listening to him a little bit while I was trying to madly go through other bookkeeping and tasks that are put before me. I just got off the phone with somebody in Marin County, north of, in the northern part of the Bay Area. And uh, he bookmarked me seven years ago. <laughs> now he's finding uh, a need to know more about what he saw that I was writing seven years ago. Actually, I was probably writing it 30 years ago or maybe 40 years ago. I've been on this journey for almost three quarters of a century, I guess. Uh, it depends on when you want to talk about me getting on this journey. And uh, what we're talking about is the kingdom of God and uh, his righteousness, which we are supposed to be seeking if we're Christians. Because that's what Christ said. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what John the Baptist said. That's what Jesus said. That's what the apostles were showing you and helping you do. And of course the apostles were told when they were only disciples that they had to organize the people into the tens, hundreds, and thousands. It very clearly says that in Mark and references it in more than one place. And throughout history, it's extremely referenced because, like I said, every free nation, every free nation that I've ever known of, organized themselves in a very similar fashion. Now, occasionally you'll find uh, tribes that don't quite do it exactly that way, but those tribes are very limited. You know, they may be 500 or 800 people or 1,000 people, but how many families? 100 families? You know, you could have ten families in a clan uh, easily. Yeah, because, you know, you have a grandfather, he has ten sons. Well, now you got ten families in a clan. Uh, and there's no reason to believe that you couldn't have a grandfather with ten sons and each of those sons have a half a dozen sons or more. So now you got several hundred families and you're still in one clan. Now you want to make a tribe. Okay, so now you got five, ten grandfathers together. And that may represent a couple hundred families. Maybe. Maybe it only represents a hundred families. But uh, that's still just a tribe. And that that works. I remember seeing uh, a place called Alice, a movie. And it was a Kodak moment for me. One particular scene, which was actually filmed on site in Indonesia... And it was about a woman who was captured by the Japanese during World War II. And she uh, was moved around. And most of the women that were captured with her died under the ordeal. And eventually they had a guard who wasn't didn't have much use as a soldier. And they just said, you guard them. 
and take them from this point to another point. And so wherever he took them, the villagers had defeated them and and he just kept marching them across uh, Indonesia and supposedly going to go to another place and he was all dejected because he knows he got the job just because he wasn't a very good soldier and he tried to do right by the women as best he could but eventually he just died and so they didn't know what to do they're out in the middle of Indonesia surrounded by Japanese uh, uh, MacArthur's nowhere near <laughs> to save them <laughs> and the, the, they have to survive in the war and so they went to work in one of the villages. And they just worked in the, the the villages. Many of the men were taken away to work on Japanese work projects. And so the women had to plant the crops. They'll often the women planted the crops. But I mean they had to plow and plant and everything. And so all hands on deck so to speak. And so they helped plant the crops. And the village fed them. And they survived the war. Until they were finally released. And they go back to civilization as if they weren't in civilization but into their English civilization and she ends up inheriting a bunch of money well during this adventure not telling you the whole movie she meets an Australian soldier who helps her out a couple of times and ends up getting crucified himself he's kind of a tough rebellious kind of typical Australian (laughs) and uh, he gets crucified on a wall or a door or something by Japanese to set an example for him of him because he was a bit of a rebel uh, but she liked him she cared about him and uh, but she ended up he went off you know he's a prisoner too and and but she owes her survival to the fact that uh, he kept his mouth shut even under torture and and he helped her out even under threat of being killed and so she tried to find him and she found him in a place, I guess, called Alice in Australia. And he's working in a sheep camp. And uh, on a, oh, I forgot what they call it, a corral or whatever it is, you know, uh, outpost. Uh, and it's pretty rough living. This is back in the day. And uh, she goes there to visit him and uh, ends up marrying him and having children and all this kind of stuff. But... She inherited a bunch of money from the relatives that didn't survive World War II. And uh, she was able to help him. And, you know, he still was a shepherd and all that kind of stuff. But what she really wanted to do is go back and help the village that saved her life. Even though she had to work in the village in order to be fed. But the, the village took her in. She wore the Serapis along with the other couple of women that survived with her. And they survived hard times. I mean, really hard times. The guard was gone. If the Japanese found them, they'd say, did you kill the guard? (laughs) I don't know what they'd say. But anyway, they, they had no place to go. The village took them in and they survived. So she went back. She wanted to do something for the village. And one of the things that they didn't have in the village is fresh drinking water. They had water from the ponds and water from the rain and the streams and stuff. But they had no well. They were a poor village. And so she said to the chief of the village, who she evidently knew from her experience there, that she wants to drill the well. Where can we drill the well? And... I believe they were actually in the village. They were definitely in a village. These were not actors. 
And uh, I don't know if it was the woman. It was probably a movie star, you know, playing the part and everything. But they looked like they were really in an Indonesian village. But the villager chief said, well, I can't tell you where to. He said, well, you're the chief. Why can't you say where the well's going to go? Well, we don't do it that way. <laughs> that's, not, that's not how we do it. And so they gathered a council of men of all the head of the families in the village. These are the heads of clans. These are grandfathers. All old men sitting around. About ten of them. Maybe a little bit more. Around that number. Sitting around in this circle. And they're putting the tomb. Where should we put the well? This well that this lady wants to give us. Where should we put it? If I put it near this house, then I maybe offend this guy. If I put it near this house, I may offend that guy. So where's the? where can we agree? All agree. Because there's... The head of the village isn't the ruler over the people. He's the ruler over the meeting where the people decide where the well is going to go. And so they sit down to decide where the well is going to go. And they're all talking. Of course, it's in another language. And, and we see that actual footage of them. And behind each of the men, there's other men. Now, it's clearly old men around the circle. But the men behind them are are probably their sons. Heads of families, but still their sons. And behind them are other people, which is probably more of their family. And they're all sitting there and they're discussing where the well is going to go. And they finally decide where the well is going to go and she pays for the drilling of the well. And it goes in and they have water, fresh water that everybody can go to to get fresh drinking water that's not out of the stream, not going to have cholera, not going to have all these other dangerous parasites that you could pick up. More people die from poor drinking water probably than any other thing. And in the days to come in America and in Australia... Probably, and much of Europe, millions upon millions of people will probably die from poor drinking water because society will break down, the institutions of society will break down, just like we saw with COVID, where the institutions of health, like the CDC or, you know, whatever they are, you know, World Health Organization, all these things have been hijacked, according to Ioannidis. I'm just quoting Ioannidis, who wrote the book on virology, is Stanford University guy. He said, the systems that we have relied upon to determine what is truly science have been hijacked. He used the word hijacked. So I'm just quoting him. If, if he's wrong, you know, go censor him. But, the system was destroyed, broke down. And you go to Australia, they had the cheapest power of anywhere in the Pacific. And a, a, an excellent operating power grid where they everybody could warm their houses, they could run their refrigeration, they could run their business because they had cheap electricity. They don't anymore. What happened to it? Well, the coal fire plants, many of them were dynamited and blown up. They put in solar and they put in wind generation. Neither which are green energies. I sat down and spoke. Had break- He bought my breakfast the other day. <laughs> a, a guy representing a solar power company wanting to put in thousands upon thousands of acres of solar batteries. Uh, actually, many of them in the county where I live which is high desert county, doesn't rain much. Uh, we have large amounts of tracts of land that doesn't grow much. And, of course, you can put these in so that they can still be 
useful for the environment, but, uh, you know, uh, habitat and all that kind of stuff. But uh, he admits they're not green energy. Solar power is not green energy. You're not going to produce less carbon because you put in solar. It's not going to happen. You just do the math. How much carbon does it take to make solar batteries? How much carbon does it take to ship them from China to the United States? How much carbon does it take to ship them from the port to the location where you're going to put it? How much carbon does it take to build all the steel parts that will mount the solar batteries? How much carbon and copper will it take to create the system whereby the solar batteries can charge the electric grid? So add up all that carbon and then tell me how many carbon kilowatts you're going to save over, say, natural gas or over hydroelectric. You're not going to save any carbon whatsoever by putting in solar batteries. They're not green energy. They just do the math. But people can't do the math because we live in a world of zombies. And zombies don't know how to do math. (laughs) They know how to bite one another, but they don't know how to do math. So why do I mention zombies? Because I was just introduced to this John Vernacki, and he he wrote a book about zombies. Uh, Zombies in, uh, you know, I can't even read what I wrote here because I'm going blind, actually. (laughs) But uh, uh, I can't remember the whole title, but it's, you know, like... Uh, zombies in North America and in the Western culture, I think is what it is. I wrote it down somewhere here, but anyway, uh, and that's, you know, he says that there's a, he, he actually talks very positive about the fact that there's kind of an awakening going on or an attempt where people are trying to find answers, trying to find meaning in life and they're, they're looking up and trying to find out about the Stoics. I've done some writing recently about the Stoics. Of course, I studied the Stoics 50, 60 years ago uh, when I was going to St. Joseph's College in the Bay Area. Area. (laughs) St. Joseph's College doesn't exist anymore. It burned down. It didn't burn down when I was there. But uh, anyway, so I studied this over the years. I studied lots of things over the years. I actually took a job as a security guard for a while so that I could go to the library during the day and and take sacks of books uh, to the security job because you you just had to do rounds, you know, like every hour you had to do rounds and then you were stuck in a chair waiting. So I read all night long, (laughs) just read book after book after book after book to continue my studies. and, you know, there's been a lot of opportunities in my life to do that. So I've read a lot, studied a lot, pondered a lot, been seeking my own awakening. And so I may, in the next month, I'm going to be somewhat incapacitated, won't be able to do the manual labor that I'm normally used to doing. I went out and chopped a bunch of wood this afternoon between the radio program this morning and this afternoon. Uh, and... Uh, uh, my wife often stacks the wood and she says, I'm just making more work for her. I said, well, we're going to be able to heat our house with that wood this winter. So, uh, it, it, it will come in handy. We've got enough wood to get us through this winter or maybe part of the next winter. But, uh, uh, 
I won't be able to chop next month. I won't be able to do any physical work next month. So I'm going to be listening to podcasts. And my grandson put me on to John Vernecki and said, you should listen to this, Grandpa. <laughs> so so anyway, I did listen to part of the first episode before the show. and But he's talking about awakening. He's talking about... Uh, self-deception, he's talking about psychedelic drugs, he's talking about Buddhism, he's talking about mindfulness. And I actually have done some writing about mindfulness. What does that mean? And what is awakening? And when are you actually awakening or just being self-deceived? And of course, this will all fit into the series that we've done on natural law because natural law takes you down to the ethical and moral dynamics or elements of humanity you know, there's a social morality and like I, I was saying in the that village they had standards but some of their standards were social morality imposed by traditions that they have done for years it was Muslims it was mostly Muslims probably not the Muslims that you see flying supposedly into buildings or or creating jihad, but uh, they were Muslims because the Muslims came through hundreds of years ago and invaded and made everybody Muslims. <laughs> but the individuals, you know, you can go and find Muslims that give you the shirt off their back that, that will risk their life to save you, uh, that have a standard of morality that you cannot match anywhere else. And then you'll find other Muslims that are as barbaric and as cruel and as vicious is any of the priests during the Inquisition. <laughs> so, now I've, I've kind of balanced that. So, I'm not picking on Muslims. I'm not picking on Inquisition, uh, Catholics who are killing people and putting spikes in them and, and all these things. And then I, we can talk about the, you know, I don't know what religion the guy was who uh, saved the woman to begin with that she eventually married. But it, it's not about the label of religion, whether you label yourself stoic. I talked about Marcus Aurelius in this morning show where we did Matthew 1 and connected that to the natural law, to the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God actually is. The kingdom of God is a way. That's why it was called the way. It's a way in which the people to sit down together and make decisions For the mutual benefit of everybody sitting down in a group. And it requires the muscles of the kingdom of God. It requires the morality of Christ. The ethics of the angels. Because it is those elements of ethics and morality that are not imposed by social democracies or social religious groups. or But is actually imposed by the law of nature. Because there is a law of morality that is imposed upon creation. A law of ethics imposed upon creation. And religions, as we calculate religions, you know, like Muslims and Buddhists and and Presbyterians and Catholics and Jehovah Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists and I'm trying to run through all the names. I can't get them all. There's 40,000 denominations. But religions, as most people think of it, is trying to find out what the morality of God is. The morality of the Holy Spirit. 
the morality of Christ is. And we have this book we read, we call it the Bible, Scripture, or whatever. If you guys start spreading the information that I'm sharing with you on this network, and, you know, the, the guy who called up, he, you know, bookmarked me seven years ago, but he hasn't read all the books. They're all available online. And I, I understand that. I mean, like, he wanted to know where to start. And everybody asked me that, where to start. And I don't know where you should start. And, of course, that's not the answer. Everybody wants me to tell them what to do. And I, I don't want to tell you what to do. I want you to listen to the Holy Spirit. Because the morality that I talk about, that comes from the law of nature and the, the creator of nature, the God of nature, the God of creation. That morality that he writes into the system of nature itself. You have to discover that. I can write about it. Jehovah Witnesses can write about it. The Catholics can write about it. The Buddhists can write about it. The, the, the hundreds of sects, maybe thousands of sects of Muslims can write about it. But it doesn't, what you write about it doesn't change what it is. It is what it is. Like I said, you know, in, in the trial of Sir Thomas More, he asks, can the decrees of the king, if the, if the world is round, can the decrees of the king make it flat? If the world is flat, can the acts of parliament make it round? No. Neither can all your religions, all your churches, all your priests and popes and pontiffs. They cannot change the moral ethics of God. Which are written in the law of nature. So that when you you start going around and looking for this awakening, you want to make sure that you don't become a zombie. (laughs) And start... Because uh, the Bible talks about zombies. Did you know the Bible talks about zombies? They're right in the New Testament. They talk about zombies. Right? What does it say? Be careful. You do not bite one another. Lest you be devoured. <laughs> so, that's zombies. That's just talking about zombies. Yeah. But, yeah. The, like I said, they're vampires out there. Real vampires in the world. They don't have those long teeth that you, you see in the movies. They don't actually drink your blood. They drink your your spiritual blood, your psychological blood. They feed off of you. They make we call them sociopaths most of the time, but they're they're vampires. They they come in. They don't poke you with their teeth. They poke you with their attitude, with their their psychological poking, and make you angry. And then they manipulate you. They control you. Isn't that what what vampires do? Is they control the people. And they usually have a couple of mistresses that they control that do their bidding for them. <laughs> they always got more women stringing along. That's the sociopath vampires. You know, which are also, you know, you scratch a sociopath, you know. Like the thumbnail scratching, you scratch them and underneath you'll find a psychopath. <laughs> but how do you war against them? How do you fight? Well, all you need is the morality of the creator. The ethics of creation. That's all you need. And you can cast out demons. But you're not going to find out what the morality of 
the creation is, the ethics of creation is, by just studying the Bible, studying authors, Calvinism, all these. You're not going to figure it out that way. Any more than Adam and Eve could figure out what was good and evil by eating of the tree of knowledge. They couldn't figure out what was good and evil by eating of the tree of knowledge. As a matter of fact, by eating of the tree of knowledge, their eyes got darker. They they actually got afraid of the light. They hid from the light. They ran from the light. So anyway, we're, we'll talk about this John uh, Vernecki, and we'll you know I'll go through. Hopefully, I'll find the time to go through his fifty three videos. And maybe I'll make videos. I'll, I may have to. Uh, I, I will definitely make recordings. And uh, but I'd like to get them on YouTube. So because that's just one of the outlets. But you have to get them on all the other things. I actually went through and created a media page at Preparing You uh, Social Media. I think I called it. You can do a search, find it. And, and I'm sure I can add a lot more. But uh, you know, I'm on Rumble and and Bit. Shoot and YouTube and, but I'm not going to be able to manage that. You guys have to manage. You have to create the network. You have to gather together with others and share with them the information so that they can fill in the gaps in their own life. Ultimately, I can't tell everybody where to go. You know, like I was saying when he says, where does he start? Well, you know, I, I'd say, Start by coming together. Start learning to care about one another. And that's why we created the network. So that you can create a living network of people. Not dependent upon Google Groups or the Internet or any of that stuff. But dependent on relationships between you and all the other people in your network. And, you know, we have a few people in California. And it's it's been like herding cats for decades now. Where people get interested and they get enthusiastic and they, they still care about it, but they can't seem to find the time to care about others as much as they care about themselves. So they, they come up with excuses. Oh, but, but I had to go do this. I had to go bury this guy and we had a baby and I had to get this job and I'm running over here. Well, people who use those excuses, they're not going to be for you when there's hard times. You know, are they going to, you know, when all the men are taken away to work camps by the Japanese, and it probably won't be Japanese in America, it'll be the Chinese, (laughs) and the women have to fend for themselves, and other helpless English women come along who can't do a thing for themselves, and you take them in anyway, (laughs) and you say, okay, you can can work here. You know, I... I remember a young boy who was out here visiting, and I've told the story about him, but we were bucking hay for an old widow lady and stacking it by hand. I mean, we were literally picking the hay up out of the field, putting it in pickups, and then stacking the hay by hand, you know, 10, 12, 15 bales high. And uh, it was a lot of work, hot summer days doing this. And uh, so he was going to help us and get it done. And uh, every time we got out, everybody grabbed some hay hooks and started lifting the bales up. And uh, one time, he was always the last one out of the pickup. And usually, everybody takes the crummy hay hooks first, leaving the better hay hooks for everybody else. 
that was the kind of people that we were working with. At least that spirit was still alive as a spark, as the yod in that group of people doing this. I'm not sure it's still burning in all those same people. (laughs) It was there at that time. And uh, maybe because it was there in me and then it kind of contaminated them. But we were all doing it. But one time, the only ones left were the terrible bent-up hayhooks. And he threw a fit. I'm not going to use these. He threw them down. And I had to read the riot act to him. I says, uh, well, we're not taking you home, so you're not going to help. There's the road. You walk home. Because everybody here is doing the job. It's not easy. It doesn't pay much. It's hard. You're going to sweat. But everybody else, you're the last one out and the first one in the truck every time. Everybody's noticed that. Because you're not a worker. You don't care about the other. Everybody, look at how everybody was doing it. That, that if, if we have to get the bales all the way up 12, 15 bales high. So you either throw it up two bales above your waist or you throw it up three bales above your waist. If you throw it up three bales above your waist, the guy up above, he only has to throw it up a couple of bales to get it to the top. So everybody is trying to throw it up farther to make it easier for the other guy. That's working together. And I I really believe that they were doing it as well as they were doing it because there was a purpose. There was bonds being created. But you have to keep doing that. If you don't keep doing that, it will atrophy. And now some of those people are just sitting back, you know, that they got a divorce, married somebody with money, and they got Social Security, and they just sit around doing nothing all the time now. They have no network of people to help them. When the Social Security check stops coming or the bank collapses, those people don't have anybody who will look out for them. They have no social bonds with anybody that cares about them because they don't really care about anybody else. They're comfortable where they're at. They have arrived at their comfort place. But hard times comes. Gonna have that. That's what I call foolish virgins. They burned their youth and and life, not creating oil amongst other people who care about them as much as they care about, you know, others. But they burned it up. So this is. We're gonna look at that. We're also gonna look at you know. He talks about uh, being immune to this selfishness that can come with. Uh, This quest for awakening, this quest for truth, the difference between foolishness and wisdom, you know, foolishness and ignorance. Ignorance is one thing, foolishness is another, and I've written articles about foolish, and I could see, I could go back and read that again with what I was picking up with from John Vernecki, and I could probably add to that and tie that article together, and it was written because of the foolishness of Saul. Saul did a foolish thing. The people did a foolish thing when they elected President Saul. Oh, oh, King Saul. We call him King Saul in the Bible. But he's really president. He was commander-in-chief of the army, and he was the principal civitas of the nation of Israel. And uh, he, he hadn't got to the point where he appointed the judges throughout the nation of Israel. That was still done through the system of priests. That's who 
elected the appeals court. There was still some sort of separation of power. But the point is, is when they elected Saul, the power and the people decreased. Because the imperium, what the Romans called the imperium, if I may use a little Latin here, which is your right to defend yourself, your right to decide certain things about your well-being, your pursuit of happiness, is now in the hands of the king. The the president. president's going to make you happy. If we just elect this president, we will be happy because he will fix things. Isn't that why they elected Saul? He was going to fix things that uh, we talked about it this morning. They could have fixed themselves through the tens, hundreds, and thousands. But they didn't want to be bothered with that. So they wanted, you know, somebody else to fix these things. The kingdom of God, by its nature, if we will conform to the way of Christ, will set us free. You know, when he bookmarked my deal, he, he said he was previously a Catholic. I was previously a Catholic. I always say I'm a, I'm a Catholic that went a Roman. But, because uh, there's Roman Catholics. But actually, when I was originally a Catholic, I wasn't in the Roman Rite Catholic Church. I was in the Carmelite Catholic Church. My my oldest brother actually took his vows as a priest, temporary vows anyway, as a priest in the Carmelite order. And that was a rite in the Catholic Church that was not a part of the Roman Rite. It eventually, it was one of the last rites of Christianity that accepted the Pope. But, you know, this is where I grew up. This is where I, you know, I went to study to be a priest uh, in St. Joseph, Joseph College. I was only 13 when I first uh, started to study there and went to a seminary in Mountain View, but our classes were all down at St. Joseph College. There was only like 60 people in the whole school. But at St. Joseph's College, I don't know, there was, I don't know, a couple thousand or something. But it was part of the path that God put me on. And see, and the, the God of creation will, will put everybody on different paths. You, you make choices and you go down this river. You make choices, you go down that river. But if, if you make the moral choices of God, where you actually start learning to care about other people, the... You know, you make a commitment. You, 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 you maybe have a child with a woman. Maybe you didn't make the commitment to marry her. You didn't want to go get a license. You didn't believe in that, but you, you had a child with her. I've, I've been dealing with several people like that. They had a child with a woman. Maybe two children with a woman. And they were helping her take care of the child and they were a couple and then all of a sudden they got interested in somebody else. And now they moved away and they're not raising those kids. Now they may send money to help raise the kids, but they're not there. They're not going to be the father figure in that child's life. Why? That's lack of commitment. That That is violation of the moral and ethical laws of nature. That you produce something, but you didn't carry it to fruition. It's like a woman giving birth to a child, but she doesn't want to nurse it. She doesn't want to raise it. And it dies a crib death. She doesn't feed it. I mean, you can see the horrible cases where somebody leaves it in a garbage bag in a dumpster. 
you know, or leaves it in a bathroom, or maybe they take it to a a convent somewhere and leave it off, or an orphanage, that's very common in Europe, because there's orphanages everywhere. In China, they were doing the same thing, where they had an actual little box on the street in a wall, and you could come, and you if you had a baby, you could open up the box and put the baby in and close the box. And then on the other side, somebody would know that somebody had opened and closed the box and they would go and take care of the baby and raise it for you. And no questions asked. You could actually do that at a lot of fire departments used to be that you, if you didn't want to raise your baby, don't kill it, don't throw it in a dumpster, take it and leave it at a fire department. And they will find an orphanage for it. They'll find a family that will raise it. Of course, hopefully you have better insight than that. But the reality is is that those are the worst case when they throw the baby away. But a lot of people throw the baby away one day at a time. They don't feed it. They don't nurture it. They don't educate it. Oh, they can't wait till the public school starts and they can turn the child over to daycare or, or preschool or kindergarten or public school you know I, I, I remember hearing neighbors of mine they've passed away since I've outlived most of them but they said they couldn't wait till school started and the kids weren't at home anymore that was just shocking to us didn't fit into our way of thinking whatsoever because we home taught all of our kids they were all the time School was always on. Education was always a part. And they've all become successful, at least financially, I guess, successful. Uh, but each of them, we knew, were on their own journey. Just as you're on your own journey. So what are you going to learn about that journey? How will you know if you're being deceived? Like uh, John Vernecki says that people... This self-deception. Obviously, the world's trying to deceive you all the time, and we've shared lots of information on how they've tried to deceive you. I mean, people say, well, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Well, all of you regular listeners know that that was... Jesus said that to Pontius Pilate when he was trying to sit in the judgment seat. And, and basically the Greek word he used, one of four that we see in the New Testament, which is really one of five that could be translated world, was, my kingdom's not of your constitutional order or system of government and you ain't got no jurisdiction. That's, that's what he said. But Pontius Pilate had jurisdiction over a lot of other people. But not over Jesus Christ. But the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Then people say, oh, the Jews didn't accept Jesus. Well, in Pentecost we see 2,000 men one day, 3,000 the next. That's probably representing over 10,000, 12,000 people. There's 5% of Judea, uh, 5% of Jerusalem in two days. Recognize Jesus Christ knowing full well that they would be cast out of the welfare system run by the government temple of that day. But then we immediately see the apostles rightly dividing bread from house to house, working daily in that same temple. How could they be working daily in that same temple with the Pharisees still in that same temple? Well, Jesus Christ was king. They're now in charge of the temple. Which is why many of the Pharisees tried to join the Christians. Because, see, if you understood that at that particular time, 
There was already a division in the temple. There was a gate over here that the Pharisees came in. And there was a gate over here that the Essenes came in. The Essenes didn't do what the Pharisees did. The Essenes did something completely different. The the Essenes didn't believe in the animal sacrifice that we're told they were doing in the Old Testament. They read the Old Testament, but they knew there was the animal sacrifice that were taught by the modern Protestants and the Catholics, and even believed by the uh, Seventh Day Adventists and the Jehovah Witnesses. I'm trying to think of different Methodists, Lutherans, Presbyterians. All think that Moses was saying, pile up stones, don't chisel on the stones, and then kill sheep, and then set them on fire and burn them up, and God will be happy. That's nonsense. That's foolishness. That's not what the Bible says. And you could go read the book, Thy Kingdom Come. You could go read the pamphlet, Artifice in Language Land. Or look up the word sophistry at preparing you. It'll take you to an article that pretty much tells you that those piles of stones were living stones. And those sacrifices were, you know, if you weren't a sheep farmer, you didn't have to give them a sheep. Maybe you were, uh, you had an olive orchard and you had olive oil. You would go and give that olive oil on the altar. They didn't set fire to it, but they didn't set fire to the sheep either. That's not what it tells you in the Bible. You say, well, wait a minute, we've translated it. That's what it says. No, that isn't what it said. And the Essenes who read the Torah at the time of Jesus Christ knew it did not say that. But the Catholics want you to think that. I mean, you know, most of the Catholics have no idea. They just believe what they've been told. You know, I'm not picking on Catholics here. I was a Catholic. <laughs> I'm I'm picking on the delusion. I don't want to attack your delusion without giving you something in its place. But it, what I give you, is it going to make sense? Is it going to be right reason? Because whatever God is, God is reasonable. You don't find God through reason. But when you find God... He makes sense of everything else that you see around you. He makes sense. Like, what kind of a society would you get if the thing that makes God happy is that you all burn up sheep together? <laughs> That's going to really unite you so that you will all be one people because we burn up sheep together. Give me a psychologist that says there's any sense in that whatsoever. Give me any kind of a scientist that can make any sense out of that. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to the average person. It only makes sense to you if you've accepted that is what the Bible was actually saying. But since it's, it's an allegory, it's full of metaphors... And we show you, we break down the Hebrew language and we show you that all these words had double meanings. Just like I can say that person over there got a lot of heart. You know that that person has an enlarged heart and he has to be very careful when he's going up the stairs. <laughs> no, you know it means that he's compassionate. It may mean the other thing, depending on how I'm using the term. 
And that's what you're reading. You don't need to retranslate the Bible. You just have to know the double meaning of words in the Hebrew language. Because they are there. I mean, you can look them up. You can look them up for yourself. We look them up and we put it in articles so that you can see it. But all that's still knowledge. I'm just plucking knowledge out of the tree of knowledge. That isn't going to help you have the awakening. Now, he even mentioned psychedelic drugs. Can psychedelic drugs... He, he, he pointed out a statistics that normally you help somebody with PTSD or uh, any of these, you know, stress syndromes. And you get... You go to a regular psychiatrist and they can help maybe 20% of them. That doesn't mean anything because we don't even know what they're doing to help that 20%. And if that helping them, what does that mean? We have to define what helped them. They're not trying to commit suicide anymore. Well, that might have been just talking about it and the time element involved and they overcame it because they, that's where, if you listen to a psychologist like Jordan Peterson, that he just talks to people and they tell him what the problem is and what they need to do. He knows how to guide the conversation so that they can come up with the answer. But until they're willing to see the answer, they're not going to get the answer. So what really helped that 20%? 20% were willing to see something that had them change their mind, which is what repentance means. Change their mind. Change the way they were thinking before. Now they're not swept away in the destructive thinking that was bringing them to suicidal thoughts or abusing their wife or whatever it was. Their anger issues. They were able to see that process, step back from that process enough that they were freed from that process. 20%. But if you bring in psychedelic drugs, he says the number of people that are helped go way up. So obviously, right, psychedelic drugs are the answer, right? No, not really. (laughs) Don't fall for that. Psychedelic drugs are not the answer. Now, I'm not telling you to take them or not take them or anything. I'm going to just mention what may be taking place. You know, not too many years ago, if you had uh, different uh, psychosis, you know, schizophrenia, uh, different problems, uh, behavioral problems, psychological behavioral problems, you know, like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. They thought a solution was a lobotomy. They just cut out part of your brain. And they weren't very good at it. <laughs> uh, you, you, they cut out a lot of your brain and suddenly well, you weren't a problem anymore, but you did a lot more drooling than you did before they cut out part of your brain. But that, that showed an improvement. Wasn't causing trouble anymore in the ward. So, yeah, 50% of the people that had lobotomies improved <laughs> because they weren't giving Earth Cratchit such a problem anymore. And so she said, yeah, that, their behavior has improved. You know, we spend a lot more money on diapers now, but their problem has improved. Or, or shock therapy. Shock therapy. I know people personally that underwent shock therapy. Not myself. I didn't do that. 
the world was shocking enough for me. But, yeah, shock therapy. Showed improvement. Let's do that. Is that what psychedelic drugs are doing? And when we say psychedelic drugs, I mean, there's a wide range of psychedelic drugs. But if somebody's trying to convince you that psychedelic drugs is the answer, no, it's not. By the time we get to the end of his series, maybe I'll be able to make enough recordings that we will explain the detail. But I'm not going to do that right now. But the reality is, is that how do you know? And, and if you take an LSD, I haven't ever taken LSD, but I know people who have. I've watched people take LSD. I've watched people recover from it. I knew, I had seen those people before they took it. I saw those people after they took it. And they literally underwent a lobotomy. It wasn't quite as drastic as the ones who had the surgical lobotomy, but it was a lobotomy. Every time you smoke marijuana, you're performing a lobotomy on part of your mind, at least temporarily. Some of you will recover from it rather quickly. But the reality, marijuana doesn't broaden your view. It cuts your view down. And you say, now I'm more focused. Because you're the part of... It's like... Uh, I'll give you a better, people will take offense if they're marijuana smokers. And some people can get away with smoking marijuana. But on almost every case, it hampers your social inactivity, uh, social activity and relationships with others. Because it reduces the, the ability to have that social inter- interaction. Some more than others. Because we're all different. You know, and I'm not prescribing one thing over another. But take trying to think of the name of the drug. It's the one they gave all the kids retin, retinol. <laughs> That's not it. But uh, anyway, you know, there's a number of Luxol and uh, other drugs like that, behavioral drugs that kids, for hyperactive kids in school. I, I know a kid, when he was a kid, he said that when he didn't take the drug, he couldn't pay attention to the teacher. If somebody was moving in class, if some car went by outside, if a bird flew by the window, his attention was all over the place. He he was one of these people who just see everything going on around him. And this was the period of time, a lot of times I just was talking to somebody who's worked at the schools for years, and they were saying that young boys, but between like 7th and 8th, maybe ninth grade, you need to help them discipline themselves to order their thinking during that period of time. From maybe 6th grade to ninth grade. Focus between 7th and 8th grade. That, you know, every kid's a little bit different. But if the boys don't organize their thinking during that p- period of time, if they are not introduced to the moral and ethical Precepts of the Creator. Not intellectually introduced to them, but introduced to them in a way that they can start making sense out of the world. They will almost never gain that period back. And it will forever control their destiny. (laughs) Because they were not introduced to the good side of the Force. During that period, and you could go back and see the same process back when a, a, a young man or young girl is two years old, when they're going through their terrible twos. These are these are mileposts in the development of the child. 
if if something interferes with that development, I, I still see it today in many of the people, the hundreds of people that I've dealt with. I, I look at a person and I just talk to them for a couple of minutes and I said, that person, they're still, I'm still talking to an eight-year-old and that person. I... I, I hear an eight-year-old talking to me. That's what I see. That's what I feel. That's my reading on that person. And then later on, I may get to know them over a period of months or years and everything and find out that they were molested when they were eight years old or with another person when they were five years old or with another person when they were actually younger than that. And you see traces of that individual. They never progressed through that process that a two-year-old needs to go through, two to three years old. that That's a process that that child needs to go through in development. And some go through it a little bit, and some do well, and some don't. And they get help, or they don't get help, or their parents don't know what's going on because their parents haven't been introduced to the moral and ethical principles of the Creator. So they can't, the parents can't really help. So they've starved their own child. I'm taking you back on this rabbit trail. We've now gone full circle. Where, yeah, this woman didn't feed their child. This woman left their child in a dumpster. This woman, and you say, horrible, horrible, horrible. But what about the woman who did not come to grips with her own soul? So she couldn't help her two-year-old get through her toes. To her three-year-old stage. To her four-year-old stage. We have taken care of child after child here. We didn't charge for it or anything. We just took care of them for people who had to work. And it was part of our service to the community. And that's what everybody should be doing. But we could see that the child was not getting part of their development. And they're still suffering. We know some of these children now 20 years later. And they're still suffering from what they did not get from their mother or from the absence of their father. And of course, the mother or the father, they didn't get it from their mother and father. But the more you go back to our Father in Heaven, the more you understand His morality, His ethics, His way, the more you try to turn what you discover into action and become a doer of the Word, doer of the way, the more you will Awaken to what you didn't know when your child was two, when your child was seven, when your child was, you know, uh, 12, 13, when they're going through these processes and you can go back and help them. And, and even if you, do, maybe they're not around, maybe they've already put a gun to their head and shot themselves. We know people who have done this because their parents didn't know the ethics of God. They didn't know the way of God. And Christ came to teach us the way of the Father. And the Holy Spirit ultimately is what has to teach us that way on an individual basis. And many of us didn't learn that. But now if you learn it, if you begin to learn it now, you may not be able to do it with your children because they're grown, they're, maybe they're dead, maybe they're way off and you can't even touch their lives. You can touch somebody else's life. You can help take care of somebody else. You can help learn what you didn't learn, what nobody taught you, what the world blocks you from seeing. Taking psychedelic drugs is not going to give you the awakening that you need. If you're, you know, if you're pounding your head against the wall and you're, you know, you're pulling out your hair and eating it, 
well, maybe we, we can put you in a straight jacket and there will be improvement. You won't eat your hair anymore. <laughs> we can put you in a padded room and you won't bust your skull anymore. But it's not going to make you a better person. And so what makes you a better person is plugging in to the power of the Holy Spirit, the creative force in the universe. And the way you do that is you start caring about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. You start caring about the neighbors you don't even know that are on the other side of the planet as much as you care about yourself. That plugs you in to a flow of energy. That making creation what it is, is through that power of the creative spirit that breathed upon the waters and set life into motion. If you want your life set into motion, you have to let that spirit breathe upon your heart and upon your mind. And in order to do that, you may have to let go of some of the things, hopefully... Uh, you'll join the network. You'll help build the network. Start sharing this information with other people. Start sharing the website. Start learning to find yourself, your way around it so you can help others. And until then, all I can say is peace upon your house and may God be with you. God bless. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.